Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. When you were young, did you feel like your parents missed the point of the clothes you were wearing or the music you listened to? Like they just fundamentally misunderstood the things that made you, you? Imagine you were a historian a hundred years from now, looking at the culture of today. What would you get? What wouldn't make sense? Chuck Klosterman's been thinking about it. The way the people who are alive during a period view the experience of what's going on doesn't seem to be the view that exists in perpetuity. It's always people who have no firsthand knowledge, who reinterpret the events and sort of shape what the meaning of history is. Yeah, me and Chuck are going to get into it. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to author and critic Chuck Klosterman about his new book, But What If We're Wrong? He's got some real particular ideas about how technology affects the way we look at culture. I'm not sure the Internet is actually going to do the main thing that we think it's going to do, which is allow um, a wider sort of scope of cultural reality. It might actually make it more inflexible. He's written eight books, countless articles, and he knows that there is a fundamental difference between writing for print and writing for the net. When I write a book, I am writing something that's going to be published a year after I'm done writing with the hope that in 20 years someone can read it again. Whereas when you're writing on the internet, the assumption is that it's really just today and tomorrow the entire internet will overwrite this. Me and Chuck Klosterman on the future of the past. Plus, comedian Debbie Kamau Bell tells us about the best advice he ever got. So Kevin Kataoka will always have a place in my heart that's like a guy who planted a seed in my head that absolutely changed the course of my career. Like, the reason why we're sitting here talking right now is because of Kevin Kataoka. And I'll tell you about the best part of the 90s that, for some reason, almost nobody is reviving. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. For years, Chuck Klosterman has been a critic. He's done other kinds of writing, too. But mostly his job is to think about something, have an opinion about it, and then argue for that opinion, entertainingly. His new book is called What If We're Wrong? Thinking About the Present as If It Was the Past. Its basic question is, should we treat the world like we actually understand it? Should we add up all the stuff we know and come to a conclusion? Should we still do that, even if we know that probably in a few hundred years everyone will think something completely different, or maybe even not care at all? He looks at books, music, science. What will people think in hundreds of years? How could you even guess? Does it matter? Will they care? He doesn't really pick stuff, but he is entertaining, as ever. Chuck Klosterman, welcome back to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to be at the center of the bullseye. I'm sorry that I sent you away from our office here when you showed up, uh, granted, 90 minutes early. Well, 
I just go where they take me and drop me off. I don't. I'm not into things like time. I would say, you know. So if somebody says, "Here you go," I like I show up, and <laughs> and you did seem surprised, and I recognize that. So I was like, "Well, I'll just walk around." You claim you. So your claim is that while you operate. And on the sequential plane, not on the relative temporal plane. Like, well, I just you some... know what thing you're supposed to do after the last thing, but not when you're supposed to do the second thing. Well, also you know, life on the road, you kind of lose track of time. You know, that's what they always say: turn the page, like Bob Seger. So, you know, I I, I could have showed up here at one in the morning, and I'd have been like, boy. Dark office. Yeah, you do. You are a real expert on life on the road, <laughs> Chuck. What with these author tours, you no, do. it is. It is. You know, it's the thing is. Like, if you if I was in a band, at least I could share. You know, the experience with my you know, bandmates, but not here. I'm just by myself. So the first question is. How did you come to obsess over what people of the future will think of now? Uh, or at least what is it like to think of now as if you are a person from the future? Sort of, yes. Trying to visualize how someone in like 100 or 300 or 1,000 years will look back at this period in the way that we look back at like the early 19th century or the 1500s or whatever. You know, how how will the experience of this, of this time uh, sort of operate as history to people who have not yet been born? Right. Yeah. So why why did you come to that? I think I've always been this way. I mean, I think unconsciously, I have, even when I was a real little guy, I just felt like, I feel like this reality is not what we think it is. Or, or I think, I, I just, I do, I couldn't have explained that, but I've always felt that way. There seems something just inaccurate to me, sort of the confidence people had about the experience of being alive. But then the specific thing is, uh, there was that reboot of the series Cosmos. And the things that I liked most was when they would reference some sort of kind of forgotten scientist, um, not usually a famous scientist, but somebody who introduced an important idea. And then it would seem that within one generation of that person's life, the new idea was accepted as if we'd always believed that. So I was like, well, that must be happening all the time. It's just not visible to us because we're inside the system as it exists. And as I was watching that, I was reading about Moby Dick. I always note that it was – I was reading about it. I wasn't reading Moby Dick. I don't want to claim that I was like sitting around casually reading Moby Dick. I was reading about it uh, and sort of the experience Melville had had, how he thought this would be his defining work. And then it came out and got mixed reviews and didn't sell very well, ruined his life. He became an alcoholic, you know, and died. And then it wasn't until after World War I, many years after he had died, that the book was – sort of rediscovered not just as like, well, this was good, but like this is the defining American novel. You know, this is what a novelist should aspire to if they're trying to do an, like an epic American idea. So the second example is like a subjective view of art. And the first thing is a subjective view of science. But in both cases, it just sort of seemed to me that the way the people who are alive during a period view the experience of what's going on doesn't seem to be the view that exists in perpetuity. It's always people who have no firsthand knowledge who reinterpret the events and sort of shape what the meaning of history is. And I thought like, well, I wonder if it's possible to do this in real time to sort of jump ahead to this non-existent person and imagine looking back now. So I, I, yeah. I wonder if part of it is the experience of being a culture critic uh, 
that leads you into thinking about this. I have come into the part of my life, I'm in my mid-30s, where all of a sudden there is distance from the part of my life where uh, culture and cultural products were the absolute 100% center of it. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, that's different for me as it is for you because it's my job as well. Um, but, you know, like uh, uh, when uh, Kanye West came out when I was in college is the most important thing ever, you know. Uh, but there's almost no things that are left that uh, matter at all. <laughs> that Well, uh, they're not supposed to, though. Still, it would be, it right. would be weird if they did because right. you were still – college is really the, even the end of it, high school more so, where you use culture almost to shape who you are. Right. And that it's supposed to tell other people – Essentially, this is the framing device for how I view the world. Then at some point, you are the person you are. So you have to appreciate these things almost totally intellectually. Like there's an emotional component, but it's no longer this thing that sort of says something meaningful about you. To answer your question about the criticism thing, well, up front, I would say it doesn't feel that way. Okay, like I, I, I don't feel like that was something I was thinking about when I did this. However, I am very aware that I can't control... What I think about, you know, everybody thinks that they can, that we have agency over what we think. But I've just slowly come to realize that we don't. So is it possible that that experience is really the driving force behind this and I'm just not aware of it? I think that's very possible. It certainly seems like something I would think about someone else. But I just have to be honest. The here's, feeling, it doesn't feel that way to me. It here's, doesn't, yeah. here's my worry, Chuck. Uh, having just read your book. Uh, that every question I ask you will lead to a series of questions about that question that you have. <laughs> well, yes, it might be a very ineffective interview. I'm sorry. I'll try not to ask questions in this interview. Uh, well, I want to I interrogate this idea for a second that I'm proposing here. Okay, sure, interrogate. So if you have questions about it, go feel free because we're doing the interrogation thing. Okay. Here. But uh, part of it is that, um, you know, as you get older as a critic— you leave the feeling that your firsthand experience is a truth, that like what something is, how you feel about it, how you see it, how you experience it are all very close together when you are going through adolescence. And as you get older, you know, there are things that you have these echoes of that importance. But if you're in the culture business, you have to start to think about, oh, what are the things other than that? that matter? Like, what are the bigger implications? What are the stories? Like, what are the things that are outside of my direct personal lived experience? And you have to kind of come to terms with that if you want to do anything beyond age 30 or so. Oh, sure. You know, I mean, I tend to view criticism as a kind of intellectual entertainment and a veiled form of autobiography. You can't really think of those things when you're doing it. Like, you can't Work from the premise that that the way you are sort of framing or explaining something is really just a reflection of the way you view the world, even though I think that's for the most part true. Okay, um, so to me, this book and this question probably is a slightly more meaningful kind of criticism. Like I, I, I do think that uh, an aspect of any criticism should be attempting to get to the essence of something and trying to figure out if that essence is temporary or profound and meaningful uh, with the hope that if it is meaningful or profound or, or really deep or taps into some kind of like a uh, like quintessential thing that will exist forever 
uh, and and sort of transcend the period it exists in. But I don't think about these things so much when I'm writing, although I totally understand when I'm done how that is the way it will come across. So here's my question, yeah. Chuck. If you if you think of yourself as in in some way looking for that quintessential whateverness, um you know, you certainly play with that in the book. I mean, there's a little bit of discussion of what is the that of rock. There is a little bit of discussion of what is the that of contemporary literature. And you're trying, yeah, okay, go ahead, finish before I interrupt you. But. but mostly there is discussion of I could never know what the that is. And so why do you think that you, you know, didn't come to this question and think like, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to make my best guess, pick it and build it and defend it. Cuz I'm I'm not interested in making predictions. And it's interesting any time you write about futurism in any way. And I suppose I am if I'm talking about people in the future looking back. The desire from the consumer is to hear predictions. You know, that's a fun part of it. But that's not what this is. This is in some ways almost the opposite of predictions because what I'm kind of arguing in many ways is that I think that the way these things happen tend to be more arbitrary or ancillary to something else. So what I'm trying to do is say, once we establish that something has enough merit to be in the conversation, how does the conversation actually unspool? Sometimes when people read this book, especially if they're interviewing me, they want to know if it's a pessimistic book or an optimistic book? Like, is it optimistic that I think, oh, the world is impossible to know and all these weird things could explain it? Or is it pessimistic? Does it say it's kind of hopeless to even have these discussions because we're just going to be wrong anyways? It feels to me like kind of a neutral thing. The world will be different, and that might seem uncomfortable to people who are used to the way it was, but I don't, I don't really see it having a, like a good or bad quality. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to author Chuck Klosterman. His latest book, But What If We're Wrong, is about the future of the past, how people tomorrow will think about the culture of now. One of the examples that you give of a stand-in for everything is Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Everyone's on board with Shakespeare is the greatest writer of the English language. Order. Certainly the greatest playwright in terms of the way he creates characters, the way those characters interact, and the language he used. Right. So definitely it's entirely possible to engage with Shakespeare and think this is the boringest thing I've ever seen in my life. Sure. Uh, some productions of like Antony and Cleopatra have definitely made me feel that yeah. way. But it's just – you're basically like like canons exist to be disagreed with. Right. So when you voice that opinion, you're not even so much talking about Shakespeare. You're talking about the idea that somehow Shakespeare is inherently different. And inherently right. great. And, of course, it's lot. Part of the reason that you say that, that Shakespeare can be agreed upon in this way is that we have also agreed to evaluate this category based essentially on Shakespeareiness. Yeah, it, it's, like a, it's like a tautological thing. Like Shakespeare's the greatest playwright because he's the most like Shakespeare. What seems to happen to me – this is the way I perceive it pretty much any idiom of art or any field really, is that you start with many, many, many candidates uh, and then the best candidates are in a position to really sort of be iconic or remembered. And then time moves forward and kind of plods along and candidates fall by the wayside until one remains. And then then that one person is exaggerated and amplified and becomes the idea itself. So now when we talk about sort of playwriting and language in these things, 
the person we're using sort of as the model of it working is Shakespeare. So, of course, he's the best. Um, it would be sort of like if we're having a discussion about the greatest presidents. And if we were to have it in 100 years, Washington and Lincoln, these people are still going to be in the conversation because they actually invented what the idea of a good president is. Um, so, you know, is that a criticism of Shakespeare now? Am I saying someone else could have been Shakespeare? I absolutely am saying that. Someone else could have been Shakespeare if the world had unspooled differently. Uh, but that doesn't mean that he's a hack or that he doesn't deserve it. It's just that he got picked. Do you worry about what your contribution to culture means, like what the impact is or whether you will disappear from the earth in 100 years without a trace? I think that my impact will end when I stop writing books. And I, I mean, I, I think that as long as I write books, there'll be some interest in, in what I write, partially because of what I've written before. And then at some point I'll stop. And I, I don't know if I have done anything that puts me in a position to sort of exist independently beyond myself. And then at one point, probably I will die. And then for 24 hours on Twitter, people who hated me will claim they loved me. That seems to be the end goal of artists now. You have a career, you disappear, you die, and then everyone collectively discusses how great you were and how meaningful you were. That seems to be how these work out. I I do not anticipate or imagine my work living beyond my life. I mean, it would be great. Anybody who writes obviously is hoping that will happen. I mean, to think that those books would still be read a hundred years from now, that would be great, but... I don't think that will happen because there's just too much evidence to the contrary. There's too many talented people who have disappeared in my own lifetime that it it's kind of almost beyond arrogant to think that it's just it's just sort of like it's like playing the lottery seriously, like buying a lottery ticket and really looking at as like, well, okay, I got a lot of problems in my life, so I'm going to buy this lottery ticket, and I'm, gonna, I'm really looking forward to those numbers coming out because this is this is this is how I think I could do it. It's like it's a crazy thing. Yeah. Um, your career, like mine, is about the cultural artifacts that you care about, um, and you know, as you said, in part, criticism is autobiography. You're telling your own story through uh, these things, and you know, trying to share something of who you are through these things. Does it cause you anxiety or worry that many of the things that you care most about uh, are going to disappear? And just at some point, when people think back about rock, for example, they will just think, depending on your best guesses, the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, uh, Chuck Berry, the Beatles, but probably only one of those. So do I worry about that? Like, you know... Or, you know, I love Kiss or whatever. Do, do, do I think to myself, boy, you know, is it sad that in 200 years, the only per, you know only people who will know about Kiss are probably cultural historians specifically interested in the late 20th century? I, that I don't think that's bad. That's to me normal. If these things are lost, like, is it important that a lot of people know about it? I think it is important that one person knows about it. Like there, there needs to be a historian. Like historians are important people because like you only need a couple of them to keep complicated ideas around forever. But I guess I don't worry about the culture that informs my life disappearing. I guess again I expect it to. Do you feel 
like you matter less <laughs> because uh you are because you are moving out of the center of the cultural conversation uh no i don't i mean i i was always the kind of person who wanted to be older you know and i, I think it's very strange i've really noticed this in music criticism, but also I've seen it in TV and film criticism. There's this belief now because the internet is so central to our lives and because any technological extension of culture is going to be dominated by younger people just by the nature of adoption of technology, there's a real desire to almost be younger. Like I see a lot of music critics who are older than me. And yet I now see them almost trying to re-embrace sort of the values and the interests of a teenage kid. And I just – you know, I understand why there's like a real sort of kind of careerist demand for that, you know. But I'm just not like that. So I'm not worried about – the only – I'll be just totally honest. The only thing that worries me about moving out of more of the center of the culture is it might be harder to sell enough books – to make enough money to be able to keep doing this is the only thing I do. I mean, I feel very, very fortunate that the main thing I do to make a living is write books. And then if I publish them, if I put them out, enough people will buy them that I can keep doing it. So that concerns me in a totally practical way. I mean, if it turned out that I could make a good living and not have to worry about what I'll do later, selling 10,000 books, you know, or whatever, some small number, that would be fine with me. Like if I knew that I was secure. But I just, because of sort of the way I was raised, I'm always worried about being broke, you know? You mentioned in the book, um, you were born in the early 70s when you started working at a newspaper, which was your first writing job. Yes. Uh, the internet was a thing for jerks to be ignored. Basically. Well, I mean, I started a paper in 1994, and I, there was, of course, some younger people on staff, me being one of them, saying, like, can we get the internet in the newsroom? And most of the newsroom was like, no, and that's a stupid thing to want. Like, like it's dumb of you to request this. They saw it totally as a gratuitous luxury thing, although, to be fair, at the time, in many ways it was. Like, you couldn't really use it as much of a news gathering source even though I that, mean, yeah. what if you're what if you're a reporter whose beat is ascii art then <laughs> yeah, 1994's yeah. internet I would suppose. have been really important I for you suppose. not a luxury yeah. um you but need it, a picture of Cindy Crawford it, rendered exclusively with semicolons well, well then the internet in 1994 is exactly where to go I mean I I very much know I remember the first person I ever knew who had email he was I was living in the dorms and he was my sweet mage and it made me hate him because it was a, he would plug into the phone and be on the phone, you know, the dial-up thing, hours upon hours upon hours, and it would turn out all he was doing was like sending someone the Batman logo, <laughs> and it would take four hours or whatever. And I was just like, this is the stupidest thing in the world. I'll never do this, you know. Um, but then, but then, of course, I was wrong. Then, of course, now it became the center of everything, and when I quit. This will be the only thing. Like, I assume the last book I write, whenever that is, if it is a physical object, that will be the equivalent of 
some kind of like novelty promotional thing. Like it'll be it'll be something someone buys solely to put it on a shelf with no intention of reading it, and that actually all the consumption of it will be digital. For centuries, you know, the canon existed in part because of the limitations of the ability to distribute information. Um, and the internet functionally erases many of those limitations. So in a world where we can live among all of the culture we choose to, how does that affect what culture persists? Well, I mean, it's kind of like the key question of this time, probably. Like, the superficial response to this would be that there are now, we've democratized the number of voices. So there'll be different ideas and there'll be no sort of monoculture and uh, there will just be sort of this 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 whole menagerie of different ideas and it won't be like it was in the past, you know, where there was just this one silo that kind of made the decisions. I think what might be more plausible though is that despite the more voices that are involved, they are fundamentally pushing the same general ideas. There is still a real consensus. And I wonder if actually it might be more difficult to contradict the kind of galvanized, calcified ideas in the future than it is in the past because there will be such an avalanche. There will be so much information promoting the same idea. It will be hard for someone to say, well, actually this meant something else. I mean, like an example is like if we go back and find a novel from – you know, 1876 or something, and and we want to talk about what it means now, it would have been reviewed, there would have been people talking about it, but for the most part, it's open to interpretation, you know. Will that be the case for someone like Jonathan Franzen or whatever, where there's so many ideas right now in the present tense about what he's supposed to mean? Will it be possible to say, actually he meant something different. I don't know. I'm not sure the internet is actually going to do the main thing that we think it's going to do, which is allow um, a wider sort of scope of cultural reality. It might actually make it more inflexible. Well, there, I mean, there is this kind of idea of what the internet is that you kind of allude to briefly in the book when you're talking about Edward Snowden. Mm. You've come to admire Edward Snowden and what he stands for, but there's this... Uh, moment where he says that one of the amazing things about the internet is that by anonymizing and impersonalizing and at the same time connecting people, it could allow an 11-year-old to argue on equal footing with an expert on a given subject, you know, with the internet as the intermediary, which you basically say is a dum-dum Yeah, thing. well, it's like it's, that's not good. I mean, like yeah. he's talking about the early days of the internet, you know, what he would consider, I guess, the pre-surveillance period of the internet. Right, the kind of yes. the era of uh, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Right? Yes, yes. And, and his thing was like this was sort of like the special amazing thing is that, you know, uh, a kid and an expert can sort of talk and, and it's equal because the mechanism allows them to be equal. And I'm like, well, that just seems actually idiotic to me. Like, I think he's a very credible person. I think for the most part, he's been a, a very positive force in society, but I disagree with that. But then another part of me thinks, well, is this just because I am unable to get out of the way I have been socialized to think? And, you know, throughout this book, I talk a lot about Aristotle. I make a lot of jokes about Aristotle because he seemingly had, like, the greatest number of brilliant, idiotic ideas. Like, you know, a rock doesn't float 
because it wants to be on the ground. A rock has agency. So gravity is actually like rocks desiring to be on the ground. You know, if there was some 11-year-old girl during that period who was on record saying like, hey, dude, you're wrong about this. You have, you know, but, you know, we would name a college after her now. That would be a real meaningful thing. I'm, it's just really difficult for me at times to sort of reconcile how I feel about things and my suspicion that my feelings are not based on the logic that I want to pretend. That it's really just a little bit of logic and a lot of emotion and sort of a lot of socialization and I'm just kind of wrapping it all up and having an idea. So I'm insecure about a lot of my ideas. I mean, this book probably proves that. After a break, I'll talk to Chuck Klosterman about why it's so hard to predict who will be remembered 100 years from now. I'm the soon-to-be-forgotten Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Here's a great way to listen to Bullseye, NPR One. It's an app for your phone, kind of like Pandora for public radio. It's full of news and stories from your favorite podcasters, NPR, and the local station you call your own. Whenever you're ready to listen, NPR One has something great, dot, 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 just for you. Find it on your app store, N-P-R-O-N-E. Hey, Max Fun community. This is your friend, Elizabeth Gilbert, author of Eat, Pray, Love, and a bunch of other stuff. I am a longtime member, supporter, and devoted follower of Maximum Fun. And now, finally, I have my own podcast on the network. It's called Magic Lessons, and it is me coaching people through their creative issues and problems. This season, we have some amazing creators that we're helping through their joys and struggles of making something out of nothing. And then I bring in special guests like Glennon Doyle Melton, Brandon Stanton, Martha Beck, the poet Mark Nepo, Michael Ian Black, Sarah Jones, Gary Scheingart, these amazing friends of mine to come and help coach these people so that they can get their work done. I hope you'll tune into it. It's called Magic Lessons, and it's all about love. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Chuck Klosterman. His new book about how we'll think about today's culture in the future and how the way we think about culture changes over time is called But What If We're Wrong? Not long ago on the internet, I ran into someone, uh, you know, electronically, uh, who remembered me from uh, the San Francisco Giants Usenet group. (laughs) (laughs) And this person at the time was an adult, (laughs) like in 1995 or 6 or whenever this was. And uh, I was like 14. (laughs) And uh, it was the strangest thing that's ever happened to me to think of someone who knew me as like a full-fledged human being because of the scrim of the internet when I was a 14-year-old not quite full-fledged human being. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's just, I suppose, it's like the risk of all writing. I mean, I, I often recognize this. Like, okay, I wrote my first book when I was like 27, and it was about listening to hair metal. And if I run into someone who just now read that book, like they read it last week, I am that person. Like, you know, a book freezes you in time, but it is experienced in a dynamic way. So it's a strange thing. It's like that person understands the 27-year-old me better than I do. And I lived it. But, like, I have no contact. I Now when I think of myself as a 27-year-old, I'm thinking really of a younger version of me now. And I'm sure I wasn't, you know? One of the things that you engage in the book is the difference between – the book as a medium for ideas and blogging as a medium for ideas. Mm-hmm. You describe that 
you know, in the early days of the explosion of blogging, people thought, oh, great, these people are writers. They'll write hit books. Well, the ra- I mean, it makes sense, right? It's like yeah. these people are writing for free and they're developing an audience. Obviously, this is where all great writing is going to come from now. It's like it's almost as though it's like the NCAA now. We have these people working for free and we can make them into pros, you know. And there are all these kind of blog-to-book deals. But, I mean, like when I write a book, I am writing something that's going to be published a year after I'm done writing with the hope that in 20 years someone can read it again. Whereas when you're writing on the internet, the assumption is that it's really just today and tomorrow – the entire internet will overwrite this. And if, if you disagree with what you said today, they'll just write a different version tomorrow and put a line through the things you had wrong. It's like it's, it's this thing about immediacy. That's the whole idea that the internet is happening to us as we live. Do you think that uh, the young people of today, which I am largely for the sake of convenience and branding – uh, going to define as people my age and younger, <laughs> um, uh, millennials and below. I am the oldest of millennials. The old, you're the king of the millennials. Yeah, yeah okay. exactly. So, uh, <laughs> grandpa millennial. Yeah, but um, uh, folks who like me and younger have a different kind of relationship to the continuum of popular culture than those who are older, because of the expectation and experience of uh, having access to all culture. Um, Do you think that there is a real difference? And what do you think are the implications of that? Well, I mean, if you were to ask me, like, what are changes in culture that I don't like? I mean, I guess this would be one. Now, here again, I'm not saying this change is necessarily bad. I don't like it. Okay, I, I just felt always growing up that like a smart person Part of being a smart person meant you knew about things that weren't going on now. It's like anybody can know what about the music that's happening. It's popular now. You turn the radio on. Anybody can talk about what movies are big now. You just go to the movie theater and what's playing. That if you were knowledgeable about these things, you knew about things that predate you. So that if somebody was a serious music fan, it's like they knew about records that came out before they were born. And that's how you sort of kind of validated your seriousness, you know, that memory was the biggest thing about being a smart person. So you are mad that you that you lost this sorting system at which you had sorted relatively high. Well, I, I'm sure that's part of it. I mean, when I worked at newspapers, there was all at, at both uh, the in Fargo and in Akron, both places, and I think every newspaper had this. They would have a guy who was like maybe on the copy desk and. His role was just sort of to know things that the average person couldn't really remember. Like you'd go to the guy. You'd be like, hey, you know, there was this movie and it was about cars. There were some musicians in it. And like I feel like if there's a scene where the film breaks up and he'd go like, oh, that's Tulane Blacktop. And you'd be like, oh, yeah. You know, that was his. You know, and I kind of thought like, well, there would always be a job for me. Like I'll always be able to be this person and now I will, that's, that person is gone. So once you sort of take away the idea that memory is important, that it's important to be able to actually memorize these things, that does change the definition of what a smart person is. Now a smart person I feel like among, among young people are sort of the ability to sort of aggregate ideas and multitask ideas and sort of see the contextual meaning of things quickly, like like the speed of – Technology has become part of the speed of thought or whatever. Um, yeah, and I, I, I 
don't like I mean I was I was the kind of person who always liked to remember things you know uh, but that's just you know I suppose you could make the same argument that this happened when they invented calculators I'm sure I know I know that like as someone I was born in 1981 so I am like the first generation of people for whom when you went to school there was the expectation that calculators and computers were part of the situation yes. yeah. But it was also still a stress point. Like it was, you know, I was being taught by people who had gone to school when you did everything with a, a pencil and paper or possibly a, a slate and a chalk yeah, or whatever. Or abacus. Or... Right. I don't honestly who even cuneiform and clay. Yeah. But uh, I remember as a kid, the thing that made me so mad at school uh, was basically like. Ah, why do we, there's this thing that I can just put in the numbers and it tells me, can't we learn whatever the next thing is? Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things I write about, though, is like, OK, in Bob Dylan's autobiography, he kind of briefly talks and kind of in a glancing way, but I think kind of in a meaningful way about how there's a reason that he liked to record really long songs, like, you know, songs that had 16 verses is that he just thinks there's something enriching. About memorization. And, you know, he came from a period where a lot of school was rote memorization. You were memorized lots of stuff, okay? Now, I came later, okay? By the time I was in school, they, would, they wouldn't even use the term rote memorization. We had to memorize the preamble, the Gettysburg Address. Um, I was Catholic, so we remembered lots of prayers, you know? But that was it, you know? And now I think there's even less in that. Yeah, I think the all, idea— all I, had to learn, all I had to memorize in school was, like, the quadratic equation. The thing is, it's like— what is the utility of rote memorization? It's hard to make the argument, right? It's hard to argue why somehow memorizing the Gettysburg Address had any sort of meaningful impact on anything, even my understanding of the Civil War. The question becomes, though, are there things like that that have a value that is not based in utility and that, that there's some, uh, you know, uh, algebra? I used to always wonder, why am I learning algebra? And... A lot, very often, the response would be, it just helps you think critically and work through problems. It's like you're never going to deal with a problem like this specifically, but it's a good thing to know. I'll never know if that was true or false, but something about my life experience tells me it was. But there again, it's because that was the experience I had. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne, talking with Chuck Klosterman. He's a best-selling author. He's got eight books. His latest about how we'll think about today's culture in the future is called But What If We're Wrong? My, uh, I, I interviewed Roger Angel not long ago, a really gifted and beautiful writer. And he's in his 90s now. And um, one of the things that he told me has been different about his life in old age is that he has taken up something that he had not done since school, which is memorizing poetry, and I got the impression that part of the reason was simply that it was a challenge to his mind. And then part of it, I wondered, was maybe about creating inside one's mind a beautiful ecosystem. That's interesting. You know, I mean, you talk about memorizing poetry or whatever, and I think the description you give is actually an extremely accurate, probably, explanation for why. But I think there might also be one other thing. I feel like as aging happens, at some point you're sort of forced by society to make one of two decisions, that you're either going to 
keep engaging with what's new and the way the world is going. Um, the other is to say, like, I miss the world that I remember and I am going to go in the opposite direction, even though that will completely marginalize me to people who are still moving forward. But I want that world. So if you're a 90 year old guy, it's like his earliest memories probably are of an era when memorizing poetry was sort of what uh, intelligent, aesthetically geared person did. And, you know, and he's sort of getting back into that. Um, it's just an interesting problem. I wonder if there is a third possibility as one ages, in addition to engaging with the world when the world was most vivid to you when you were a child and adolescence, adolescent or engaging with the current world as if you are now uh, a child or adolescent. And I wonder if it is the thing that in part you are doing in this book, which is to take the opportunity to try to zoom out, um, to try and consider the larger implications of things. I think it's strange not to wonder the experience of being alive is so insane and amazing and crazy in the fact that it happens in any of this, you know, that I think that if you think about that and you're sort of like, OK, th- that's true. Like, I'm not going to take that for granted. The natural then inclination is to be like, well, it's got to fit into some larger idea. Like, it, it can't just be that, like, I'm recognizing it's nuts. Like, it's got to be something else. So that's probably very true. Yeah. Do you feel like having zoomed out literally as far as you can zoom out on culture, which is to say trying to imagine the world uh, not just hundreds of years ago but hundreds of years into the future, do you think it has changed how you see culture now personally or how or the culture that you make? A little bit, although probably not dramatically because this isn't the kind of thing that works real well day to day. Like if there is a new Drake video and I look at it, it, there's not really any value in me going like, hmm, I wonder how this will look in 500 years. So you really can't do that. Like, I mean, I have the luxury of being able to do this kind of as a job. Like, you know, I can sit for seven hours a day and think about some unborn person in a future world looking back on 2016 and misinterpreting or accurately interpreting what happened. You know, but I I just, I take for granted that for most people, they don't have the luxury of doing that all day. They get to do it if they buy this book for whatever number of hours it takes. Like they get to sort of have that kind of astral projection experience you know, in a book that they're reading and maybe thinking about when they put it down. But this is just not – it's always hard for me when someone says like, you know, well, what is – why does this book need to exist? You know, why do you what, – what is the purpose of a book that does this? I mean the answer is like there isn't a good answer, but I don't think you can go through life asking that question about everything you consume. I mean it would really take a lot of fun out of everything if the only things you did were things that had a real, rational, explicable – reason, you know. I'll continue my conversation with writer Chuck Klosterman. After the break, it's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. When you're in the mood for some fun, 
Check out the Ask Me Another podcast for games, trivia, and puzzles. Loudon Wainwright sets the campaign to music and see what you know about TV shows you watched as kids. Ask Me Another's like trivia night, but a lot funnier. Play along now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Hello! This month's Beef and Dairy Network podcast is an Olympic special recorded here on Ipanema Beach in Rio de Janeiro. We'll be tackling all the big issues. Should athletes be allowed to eat lamb? Should Olympic equestrian riders be able to ride on a cow? All these questions and more answered in this month's Beef and Dairy Network Olympic special. Find us at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts from. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Chuck Klosterman. Okay, so you are a critic of all kinds of culture and you care about all kinds of culture, but I think it's fair to say that at the center of much of what you have done has been uh, rock music. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask you to make one prediction here, and I will have you note it's the only one, the only specific prediction I've had you make the entire time. I've let you off the hook completely. You, yes. As you let yourself off the hook in the book okay. consistently. In 100 years or 300 years, when rock is an abstract idea about the second half of the 20th century, who do you think is the stand-in for rock music the way that John Philip Sousa is for marching band music? Well, I think it will be the Beatles, but in the book, I argue that it will be Chuck Berry. And it comes down. So you're lying in the book? No, no, no. no do you no. want it to be the Beatles and you yes. argue for it to be Chuck yes. Berry? Or do you? Here's, he's, he's not, I'm not lying in the book. What I'm saying is that in a reasonable world, the answer is the Beatles, right? The Beatles are the best band that ever lived as far as I'm concerned. They have the best songs. There are things about them that to me actually border on the supernatural, the way like like I have a two and a half year old kid. His response to the Beatles is bizarre to me in a way that's different than any other music we play for him. I mean, just the idea that half the band there were unrelated assassination attempts on. Like that's not going to happen. So all these things tell me that it will be the Beatles. But the history of ideas tells me the opposite. The history of ideas tells me that in all likelihood, it will be something else. So then the question becomes why? And what I conclude, or argue at least, I guess, is that to me it seems possible that rock will be remembered as a collection of tropes. You know, simple, primitive R&B music. Music that came from black culture and was either co-opted or stolen by white people, however you look at it. Music that sort of essentially comes from the South. Lawless music. An element of lawlessness is part of it. Uh, that sort of the idea of urban legends and mythology is part of it. These are what rock is, you know. Um, and if you make that into a, like a fictional suit that has all these qualities, the suit fits Chuck Berry perfectly. So what I'm sort of saying is the answer that I believe it will be kind of just as a guy, as someone who loves this, is the Beatles. But I believe in my ability to be wrong more than I believe in the ability of the Beatles to keep existing. So that's how I do it. I'd be like, well, okay, if everything was reasonable, everything was sensible, it would be the Beatles. But it's not. So let's look at other ways. Yeah. Do you ever just like look up at the stars 
at night and you're just like, man, we're so in- insignificant compared to all those stars. I live in New York. You can't look at the stars. Fair enough. Chuck Klosterman, <laughs> thank you so much for coming back on Bullseye. It's always really fun to get to talk to it's you. It's my pleasure. Chuck Klosterman's brand new book is called But What If We're Wrong? Baby, here I stand before you with my heart in my hand. I want you to read it by my hoping that you understand. Well, baby, mama, please don't dog me around. I would rather love you, baby, than anyone else I know in town. W. Kamau Bell is a comic. And a lot of the time, he focuses on politics, culture. On his new CNN documentary series, The United Shades of America, he travels the United States, diving squarely into its problems. He visited San Quentin State Prison. He visited a chapter of the Ku Klux Klan in Arkansas. And he tried to pick apart gentrification in Brooklyn and Portland, Oregon. He's also looked at community policing and how Camden, New Jersey's police department is trying to instill trust between the cops and the community they serve. Camden has done this thing where they're trying to switch their mode of policing to a thing called community policing. You, when you watch black and white movies with police officers and they walk down the street and go, hello, Billy, and he goes, hello, Officer Jack, that's community policing, where the people of the community know who the police are and the police know who the people are so that when things go bad in the community, the police already know who the members of the community are and who is likely to know or not know what went wrong. Kamau likes to stay busy. Besides his stand-up, he writes for CNN he produces two weekly podcasts, including one that is completely dedicated to Denzel Washington, and he hosts a public radio show in the Bay Area. He tells us how one piece of advice changed his career forever. I am Debbie Kamal Bell, and I'm here to talk about the best advice. It's funny because when I think about the best advice, it doesn't come from somebody who I think would even think of themselves as a mentor because it was just one piece of advice that I got on a car trip, we were headed to do a road gig in Sacramento, and it was from a comic named Kevin Kataoka. So Kevin Kataoka is what we would describe as like a writerly stand-up. Like he's a great writer, and so his bits are very well written. He's a great performer, but he's like a lot of stand-ups sort of like to go up there and sort of piece it together. Like I sort of go up there and sort of yammer, but Kevin's a writer. And so me and Kevin were driving on a road trip from San Francisco to Sacramento to do like a horrible comedy club. I don't remember its name. I think it was just called Horrible Comedy Club, and. We were uh, on the road, and we were heading there, and when me and Kevin went on the road trip, I was pretty new to the Bay Area comedy scene. I'd moved from Chicago, where I'd been doing it for like three years, but like really not three years. It was like one year, three times in a row, like where you're sort of repeating the same grade three times in a row, and so I hadn't gotten a lot better. So I was this was like probably my first or second road gig ever, so it was a big deal to go on this road trip with this older comic. We drove. We were staying in like the comedy condo. It was like it was all this sort of newness of like, I'm finally in show business, and so... I was, at the time, that's the time when you're most excited about doing stand-up. I'm going on the road. I'm going to do my act. I was opening, which is like 10 minutes. But I'm a, at the time, you feel like you've sort of, you know, it's like joining the X-Men. Like, you feel like, I'm finally a member of the team. But finding out, like, yeah, but you ain't Wolverine. <laughs> so, like, you just, just relax, Iceman. Relax. Kevin was older than me in comedy. And at some point, he's like, he just, out of nowhere, he's like, if I could give you one piece of advice, don't think you can just be a stand-up comedian. You can't just rely on stand-up comedy to be what makes your career. He's like, some comics can do that, 
but that's very few and far between. You have to learn how to write other things. You have to learn how to write sketches or monologue jokes or screenplays. You have to figure out something else you can write because if you don't do that, you're going to be a comic who has an act but doesn't actually have a career. It's kind of advice that when I first heard it, I was like, well, he's not talking about me. I mean, I'm clearly the next big stand-up comedian in this country. and I hear what you're saying, old man comedy, but you're not talking about me. I didn't go home that night and start writing sketches and screenplays and one-man shows and, and uh, you know, and monologue jokes. And so in some sense, I really wasn't ready to hear that advice because I was like, I'm about to be. But, but, but once I get to Sacramento, show them my jokes. So for me at the time, it was not something that landed that hard. But again, it was something about the way he said it. He had a lot. Of, he was very respected in the comedy scene. And I thought he was really funny. That something just said, just put that on the back burner and let it simmer for 10 years till you'll need it. <laughs> till you go get it. Oh, this gumbo's ready now. It's been simmering for 10 years. I mean, it was probably many years later when I was in clubs trying to make my act work and it wasn't doing what I wanted it to do. I wasn't getting enough work. I wasn't getting enough acclaim or critical acceptance. And if I hadn't gotten that advice from Kevin, I might have just quit. I might have just been like, well, I guess this isn't going to work since I'm not a famous comedian. But in the back of my head was that advice of like, you have to figure out a different way. It wasn't until I spent time in San Francisco seeing one-person shows and hanging out with people who did them. This was outside the comedy scene, and I started directing one-person shows because I, I knew people in the scene, and I met people, and they were like, you're funny, you can help me with this. And I ended up sort of backing into directing a couple one-person shows that I sort of was like, oh, I can write one of these. And that's where the, somewhere there was Kevin Kataoka, like a, like Yoda. <laughs> like, it was just sort of like, one-man show you must write. And... I uh, packed up my truck and moved across town, rented a theater, and wrote my own one-man show, which was the W. Kamau Belker of Ending Racism in about an hour. And that is where my whole career turned around. Two things to never ask a black person about their hair. Number one, can I touch it? No. The answer is no. It's always been no. It's always going to be no. The only reason to say yes is because you're our supervisor, and it's a board meeting, and everybody's, everybody's staring. You don't need to know what a black person's hair feels like. It'll never come up. Not in a pub quiz or a trivia contest. Within a couple years, it got like critical acclaim. And then that show ended up being the show that Chris Rock saw. And Chris Rock said, I think we should give you a TV show. And then that TV show turned into Totally Biased. And then I hired Kevin Kataoka as a writer on Totally Biased. Not because of that advice, but because he's a good comedy writer. But I told him when we got the show, I was like, you know, we probably don't remember this. And he had no memory of it at all. <laughs> So Kevin Kataoka will always have a place in my heart as like a guy who planted a seed in my head that absolutely changed the course of my career. Like the reason why we're sitting here talking right now is because of Kevin Kataoka. So now that's advice I give to everybody. If I talk to a comic who I think has any sort of hint of anything, especially people who I feel like your road is probably not going to be as easy because you're not you don't look or sound like or act like what the Hollywood sort of wants from a stand-up comedian, then it's like, you need to figure out something else. And now it's funny. Back then, Kevin would have said this. Now it's like, a, write a sketch, write a screenplay, write a one-man show, start a podcast. <laughs> like, you know, there's, just, there's, there's a lot more ways. Get a YouTube channel. There's a lot more ways to, to sort of make your own gravy now than there was back then. But the response I get is very similar to what I gave Kevin. Like, all right, man. <laughs>
and now the funny part is, is like I haven't done stand up comedy in like six months <laughs> because I'm working on the the TV show United States of America. I have a podcast, Denzel Washington's the greatest actor of all time. Period. I've got a public radio show come out right now, and I'm working on like I'm writing for CNN.com. And so the funny thing is, is like I've diversified myself so much that I at this point in my life don't actually even have time for the thing that got me to this in the first place. <laughs> so, uh, but stand up comedy is always at the core of this, and I'll get back there. But it is funny to me to be like right now I'm actually not even living as a stand up. It's just, kids are just like little, empty MacBook Airs. Then you just update the software and it's all fine, you know? Like, I remember one day, I was buckling in the back of her car seat, and she went, Dada, mamas are white. I was like, whoa! <laughs> you got a corrupted file there. <laughs> I don't know what they teach you at that Berkeley preschool, but that's not how it works. Mamas can be, my mama, Gogo, your Gogo is black, so mamas can be any color of anybody else can be. Mamas aren't white. And she's like, bong. It's just like, she just updated her software. And she was like, okay, got it. And that's why we got to do this. Even as us, we have to keep updating our software and keep getting to the next place. Because if you don't update your software, then you just get that spinning beach ball face. Like you see people walking around like, ah. Gay people, marriage, ah, it's just like a spinning beach ball face, and that's how you get a Republican. That's all I'm trying to say. It's a simple equation. <laughs> when they run for president, you I think the more general version of this advice is don't go all in on any one thing. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't be committed to one thing, but you have, you have to sort of use every part of yourself that you can so i think with stand-up comedy with any profession in the arts there's shame about having a day job like if you are an artist on some level whether it's a musician or 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 a painter or a, a comedian or a writer there's shame about having a day job but it's like no 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 do as much as you can to sort of keep this all afloat and i didn't get into stand-up to be a one-person show director but once i found out i could do it it actually helped sort of uh, support the fact that I wasn't making a lot of money as a stand-up comic. So it's like using every part of your, the skills that you can, you know, treating yourself the way that, like, the old stereotype about, quote-unquote, Native Americans and the buffalo. You have to use every part of your own buffalo. <laughs> I hope that's not racist. W. Kamau Bell, and the best piece of advice he's ever received. We like to close the show with a recommendation for me. It's called The Outshot. I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's what they're calling a 90s revival going on right now. And you hear plenty about Nirvana or whatever, Beavis and Butthead. But there's one 90s act you don't hear a lot about. And if you ask me, they might be the best thing in their genre, stretching 10 years forward and 10 years back from their peak. Great band, great players, great songs tracks that were both of their time and almost timeless. Look, I'm sure we all know who I'm talking about by now, right? In fact, let's just say it together. One, two, three, Tony, Tony, Tony. By the late 80s, R&B was in a pretty tough spot. It spent most of the decade getting sweeter and lighter, and if I'm frank, lamer. 
There were certainly exceptions, but adult contemporary cheese was starting to become the rule. Hip-hop was so thrilling and revolutionary that bands were disappearing and singers were sort of receding into these light FM come-ons. Michael Jackson was making a hard turn towards pop. Prince was on rock radio. Funk holdovers like Rick James and the Gap Band were winding down and burning out. So it was pretty much back to the drawing board for Black Generation X. That's where the Tonys came in. The core of Tony, Tony, Tony was two brothers, Dwayne and Raphael Wiggins, and a cousin of theirs, Timothy Christian Riley. They came out of Oakland. Raphael wrote most of the songs. Dwayne played guitar. Timothy was on drums. Everybody sang. And this was basically the idea. Take the DNA of soul music, give it the crack and energy of hip-hop, and make a new R&B. Tony, Tony, Tony put out four albums. All of them are great. My favorite is Sons of Soul from 1993. The Tonys produced and recorded it themselves. There were jams on the record, some hard stuff, horns. Some of the sound of the Trinidadian block parties they hit when they were recording it in the Caribbean. And the slow jams were just sly enough to avoid the corniness that was piling up on the radio. I mean, I'm going to be real with you. I'm not going to play like I didn't wear out my casingle or lay your head on my pillow. Lay your head on my pillow And just relax, relax, relax This was your Along with Teddy Riley's poppier New Jack swing acts, Minneapolis Vets Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, Oakland's En Vogue, and, and a few other bands like Mint Condition, the Tonys established an ethos that was insanely new at the time. Hip-hop and R&B could live together in peace, and the secret sauce would be sold. By the mid-90s, the band was broken up. Ray Wiggins was Raphael Sadiq, maybe the most important producer in the neo-soul movement. Dwayne Wiggins opened a coffee shop. The rest of the band ended up touring county fairs with a new singer. As it turned out, the Tonys were pretty much the end of the line for R&B bands. There weren't a lot of live horn sections on pop hits after they quit. But that central insight, that idea that hip-hop and R&B could be friends... That ended up being their legacy. 
And that was the sound of pop music for the next decade. And also, you know, everybody's got an anniversary. That's my outshot. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Dan Gallucci, production assistant Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Soup Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to him. Thanks also to the Go Team and to their label, Memphis Industries. Uh, They made our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them absolutely abundantly free, just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, check out our sister show, Pop Rocket, a roundtable discussion of everything that's great in popular culture hosted by the stand-up comedian Guy Branham. This week... A special guest who was actually on America's Got Talent talks with a gang about what it's like to be inside of reality competition shows. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.